You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Blogging Heads TV. This is Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Aria Cohen-Wave, and my guest today is Nicholas Claremont. Uh, Nicholas, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, I am an editor at Arc Digital. Uh, I am a freelance writer. I write around the place, uh, including in Tablet Magazine. Uh, I'm working on a book. It's about the uh, cultural ancestry and intellectual history of trolling. Uh, I am also a words columnist, uh, doing sort of modern William Sapphire type thing. And um, yeah, that's it. Hi. Uh, thanks for coming out. Boy, tro- I didn't know you were writing a book about trolling. That that's uh, more <laughs> more important part of our lives than we would have realized, um, you know, five or six years ago. Um, so I, I look forward to <laughs> learning more about that. But we're we're going to be talking about a piece that you wrote that actually came out um, late last year in Tablet, and I guess it was it was linked in a t- in a Times op ed recently, and that's how I re- I found it. This is the first time, found it the second time. I thought it was pretty interesting and wanted to talk to you about it. Uh, the Language of Privilege is the title, um, and we'll include a link to that piece on the blog he had site. Um, uh, what made you want to write this piece? I, it actually started as uh, I was trying to convince somebody in my life that, um, I mean, basically my perception that um, what... First of all, like there's all this argument about whether wokeness is an appropriate word and whether wokeness exists and things like that. I prefer to kind of put that to the side, but that, basically that um, wokeness isn't what it says on the tin, that there's something different inside than what it presents itself as, that it is a sham, uh, that it is bad, and that it um, is parasitizing the left. And that uh, if you're the person I was trying to convince is five years younger than I am. And uh, I was just saying, hey, like, if you if you just remember, like, the Bush years, the commitments and energy and emotional experience of solidarity on not even like the far American political left, but just like ordinary liberals, like things were different. And it, there was less of an obsession with um, demographic group identity characteristics and, and less of a, I would say, much more importantly, the morality and the moral force of the way people spoke about and did politics was less buzzword based. And there was less of a generating of new buzzwords that I just, as a matter of observation, quite apart from my own feelings about certain phrases, um, I just couldn't imagine normal people learning and using and adopting in like friendly conversation with one another, unless those normal people had been to grad school or worked (laughs) out like I did. And so ever since I noticed all these people around me kind of using these words that I just thought were fraudulent, they just didn't ring right to me. And also pretending not to be millionaires when they were, their parents were millionaires and they were lying about it. And this contributed to my observation that this was a radical chic thing to use Tom Wolfe's, you know, great phrase that there was that a bunch of millionaires who were fundamentally, they had a class interest in this, in preserving the status quo. Um, and they uh, were throwing up a shield, you know, throwing up a dust to, to pretend that they were doing some sort of very transgressive uh, thing. So some sort of very progressive thing 
when in fact they were doing uh, nothing at all. They were playing around with symbols and quite ugly uh, polysyllabic words. So when I something that I found interesting about the piece was that okay, so we follow each other on Twitter, and I. From what I can sense of your politics, you're more on the right than the left, but you can correct me if I'm wrong about that. Um, I think my my sense of myself is that you are wrong, but I <laughs> increasingly, I think it's up to other, it's more important to let other people classify you than... Well, this, I mean, th- th- that plays with the theme we're talking about, like, who gets to define, you know, what words have meaning, but... I, I didn't, I, I would not consider you a socialist or a Marxist, but you kind of applied a Marxist, Marxian, or vulgar Marxist sort of analysis to this uh, phenomenon of, you know, well, I, I language, and I found I'm, that interesting. Yeah, what I'm trying to do is is push people to be more class aware, even if I don't think that, you know, like, uh, you, you know, Philippe Legalité? I don't. Uh, okay, in in the French Revolution, uh, a uh, aristocrat and I think even noble, uh, I, I shouldn't bring up examples, I don't know, totally, but uh, <laughs> I, I think he may have actually been uh, related to King Louis, uh, decided to go as far as possible uh, on taking on the side of the revolutionaries, um, and they loved this. He took on the name Philippe Legalité in order to show his, you know, complete siding with them. And they guillotined... Okay, so, so, so equality. He took on his last name, equality? Yeah, it was one of the, you know, three revolutionary slogans. And um, I, I I observed that if he got guillotined to, you know, look, I grew up going to the fanciest private schools in Manhattan. I, I don't think it'll serve me well to, uh, to, let's say, support the Marxist project of you know the global revolution of the proletariat but but i certainly think it is use it is analytically useful to think like a marxist at least some of the time and in some ways it's one of the perspectives that i can apply as a as a thinker and writer and in this case i'm applying a sort of marxist um frame or like lens to wokeness and, and i find that it has really no connection to uh anything material or meaningful about the sort of change that could occur in the world mm-hmm. other um, than people talk. Right. So there's kind of a, you know, um, Cooey Bono, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who benefits um, aspects of the piece as well. You know, if people who are using this kind of language or way of thinking, what is their ultimate goal? And you say, you know, it's essentially, you know, the, uh, children of the uh, <laughs> high bourgeoisie or something, uh, people yeah. who, who went to good uh, good colleges and graduate schools uh, using uh, confusing obscurantist language to sort of box out people who um, don't know how to use that language and maintain their own. Well, by the way, there's one thing I, I would amend, because I, I mentioned to you just before we, we recorded that, that I just reread the piece. And there's one thing that I would actually not stand by in the piece, which is that I, I gave the impression in one paragraph in the piece that I thought that like working class people are just so tired or just so otherwise, whatever, that, they, that they're unable to sort of master the language of wokeness. I, I don't think that's right. I mean, I think that they, they just, as a matter of the circumstances of ordinary people's lives, they would be unwilling. It just sounds stupid to them. 
and that they just don't happen to have gone to grad school where you learn about the intersection. You know, like they don't they hadn't read Kimberlake Crenshaw because it's not interesting and it doesn't add anything and it's not how they joke. And it's not how or it's not how, like I said in the piece, I don't prefer to speak in this way, not because I'm incapable of it, because it, it I don't like it. And so that's I just I just wanted to amend that in the piece. I think I gave the impression that I think that that this is a, a competence that some people have that other people can't achieve. In fact, I think it's something that it's just, it doesn't, some people just don't favor speaking in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, that, that makes sense. I, so one of the weird things about all of this stuff is there's sort of a bottom-up and top-down at the same time. So uh, as you note in the piece, I think, yeah, it's understood that like the the just the term woke itself was like black slang originally and mm-hmm. now it's you know Fox News hosts are talking about it. Yeah, so more than two discrete phases of evolution and there's fuzzy barriers to that, but yeah. Right. And so a lot of, you know, a lot of American slang comes from black Americans and so that shouldn't be shocking like I think I think well, I'm just remembering something I read years ago but like there's a contest the where the origin of the word cool comes from is contested and there's one idea that like it it comes from a you know pose that would be put on by um by like black men um shortly after the end of slavery and uh going back to roots from like west africa and stuff so yeah there's so almost all slang <laughs> not almost all a lot of american slang or just terms like bubbles up from Black America or other, um, you know, other groups that are not in the elite. But then you also have sort of these, yeah, these technical terms that come from professoriate, like intersectionality or uh, BIPOC, B-I-P-O-C. I don't know if people even, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard someone actually say that. Do they say BIPOC or do they say? Write it. Well, this is the thing. It's almost like. Because people don't say POC. They say P-O-C. I, right. Well, the thing is, I don't know. I mean, the thing like Arabic has is very different written and spoken, even French, for that matter. You kind of have to learn different grammar rules because it's it's insanely written. But uh, Wokies, and as much as I'm kind of sticking with this metaphor that it's a, it's another language, is it has very different rules of, of written and spoken grammar and syntax because people people don't say BIPOC that like. Uh, and, and also, I mean, people say the black and brown community, but I don't. Uh, have you ever met a person who identifies as brown? Like, of course not. That's there not, might be some. There might honestly be some out there, but I mean, there is that old. Um, it's not know, literal. Sort of, well, there's the th- there's I'm, that old sort of Sunday school thing about all the little children, you know, that Jesus is black, brown, and yellow, or something that Jesus is going to bring them in. So that has that goes back, and of course, there's like the say, Indians as the red man and the Chinese as the yellow man, or something. But um. Yeah, it's all, it's all a jumble. Um, but yeah, so it's just, it is highly confusing that you're mixing these things and like, so how does this happen? You know, uh, 30 or 40 years ago, it was like, uh, you know, there were people hanging around and (laughs) coming up with new terms or something and then just sort of spread out. And now it's social media, of course, and things can jump around much more quickly and you see someone using a term and then anyone can start using it and it gets like like normalized to use another term that sort of has different definitions than it would have 20 years ago uh in different ways and some of these 
you know, some of these are good and maybe more of them are, are stupid. And then there's like, like, did you follow a Chugi discourse? I immediately decided not to follow it. I saw it. I didn't know how to say it. And I was like, I, nah. I might be saying it wrong. I think it is. It's, so it's C-H-E-U-G-Y, Chugi. It's possibly Chugi. I forget. There's a piece in the, the Times um, about this term that like, you know, it's rare that you, there's a slang term and there's like, you can find one person who actually invented it. Seems like they actually did find this person who's like a 30 year old woman who like made it up at summer camp when she was a teen and started saying, and their friends started saying it too. It basically means not cool or like, you know, sort of like lame or out of, out of date. And then I guess it's, it's spread on TikTok. My, I thought it was a positive. No, it's bad. Okay. I thought, well, right. I think it's, it's, it's actually, it's not totally bad. It's mixed because you could be like, oh, we were so chuggy back in the day or something like that. Again, I'm probably getting some of this wrong, but anyway. I really ought to follow these, but this one I was just like, uh, you know what? I've given myself like three weeks to see if this still exists, which but, is my, in general, I do, I do a really bad job of like, I think I, I come off as so angry on social media, but which I think we all do. But the, uh, in, like, I try to have when there's like specifically a factual matter, if there's like a terrorist attack or something, I'm like, I'm just going to wait 24 hours to see if this, if the fact pattern as presented is still true in 24 hours. And with like word stuff, I think you got to give yourself three weeks to see, like, literally, is anyone still using this? Right. Well, it, what was, I mean, you know, so I'm not on TikTok. I'm not like a 27 year old girl. So I never heard this term before. And probably most other people who saw this Times article haven't. But immediately it was like people were like, this is so stupid immediately. And we're like, the anti chuggy backlash, you know, began as soon as people read this article. And then there's other like, so the, there's the Times piece. As far as I know, that's the first mainstream piece about it. Then there was something in the Telegraph, um, you know, are you chuggy? Are you anti chuggy? And it, it, so this, this sort of like think piece, you know, um, like sphere of takes and stuff where people are like, you know, the, the five clothing items you should wear if you don't want to be chuggy or something. Wait, tell and, the, that's the, the British paper, right? Yes. It's, it's jumped the pond. Um, the way, like, by the way, this is, this is, I don't, I can't decide if I think it's awful or if it makes sense because there's, there's a racism claim involved in it, but the, the, the new term for wokeness that is going around, at least in some places in England or in the United Kingdom is Markleism. Which I think is after Meghan Markle, yeah, kind of fascinating because I I don't know if they mean because she's black or if they mean because she exhibits, frankly, all of the classic tendencies of a woke person and that she makes a big show of her own victimhood on the television and talks about having self-diagnosed psychological problems that I, I don't actually believe and certain things like that. Um, no, I haven't so, seen that. That's interesting. It's too close to Marxism, I think, to to take off <laughs> um, and. Yeah, obviously she's a she's a very public I, I, figure at this point. Press is willing to deal in uh, levels of racism that makes me inherently suspicious of them. So I'm I, I'm steering very clear of that. But I'm it's just on my radar of terms I have seen and I'm interested in and would like to know more about their origin and how they're being used. Right. Okay. So you know, with so with Chugi, which is you know doesn't no one knows how to pronounce it. But it just somehow, because of technology and social media, like, like I think like it's chuggy, but I, I could be wrong. But again, I haven't heard anyone say it. No truth about this, because it's a made-up term from someone's summer camp. Exactly. Um, and then, you know, hard G, soft G is, uh, we're talking about, you know, GIF or JIF is, is also a long-running internet dispute. It's, it's GIF, there's no... I say GIF, but we're not going to settle that one here. Uh, that would be a separate conversation. But um, but yeah, just like, okay, so, you know, a girl made this up, made this word up at summer camp. She and her friend said it. Strangely, it's it spread. It seemed so. There must be like sort of something to it. It like names some thing that 
people felt like they needed a word for where the previous words weren't serving the purpose. And then because of social media uh, and because of, you know, people who want to write articles about things that are happening online, suddenly everyone knows about Shugi. And at least as far as I can tell, every, everyone, everyone being like the people I see on Twitter is like sick of Shugi instantly. And they're like, oh, Shugi, like this is so fucking stupid Shugi. And, and so I don't know, like this is just one of these weird phenomenon you know that that pop up and i guess we're all just like a little bit stupider for, for it um and uh, and and then what you know probably a year from now we'll be like oh yeah chugi like did we ever figure out how to pronounce that and just like like you know and things like spin off so i don't know where i'm going with all this but i think it like when we're talking about specific terms it certainly is the case that uh social media makes it so that you know something that a, a very small group was using a term suddenly it's everywhere and yeah. people can fight about it. And it's different. I mean, there's like that famous story, possibly apocryphal, that OMG comes from Winston Churchill. Like, the, it was like a telegram that he sent. Yes, I it. think I've heard that one too. Yeah. Um, showered on the Admiralty, I think. The, um, I, I mean, I think that it's important to know. It's not important to know. It can be interesting to know the origin of terms. But there's, it's, I, I guess there's like... Uh, this kind of like linguistic GMOs and people are always saying like, well, language evolves. So you can't object to any given term. And well, I, this is maybe a, again, like a bad metaphor because I am not against GMOs in any way, but people have this intuition that like things evolve and that you can also interfere with this in a way that makes things happen either kind of too fast or this some um, extrinsic process by which things happen that offends against the ordinary workings of things. And I, I guess I find that like, if there's some, uh, like you ever, you ever see the really great old George Carlin bit where he describes the evolution from like shell shock to post-traumatic stress yes. disorder. I, I think I, I've heard that if some, some podcast or something, I think excerpts of, excerpted that, that I listened to within the past month or so. Great. He had, he had what, like, I, I think he experienced evolutions in language, how I do, which is I just, feel, I just feel really defensive of language and I'm willing to uh, allow and admit changes. And I like all sorts of cool. So you are, work. you are a reactionary conservative. If yeah, I guess. I mean, I, but no, I like new, new word. I love neologisms. By the way, the word neologism was coined by Thomas Jefferson. It's a really fun fact. Huh. Uh, or maybe just the verb neologize. I don't know. Anyway, um, so like, I, I like new words. I try to drop new words into my column as much as possible. Uh, sometimes I'll make some up on my own. I think that's really fun. It's when a term is sort of imposed specifically as a replacement for another one for the purposes of sort of ideological conformity. And also when the term is like voguish and polysyllabic and ugly and it and it like specifically exclude means now you have no way at all of mentioning some other thing because this is the term we use and it exclude conceptually excludes mentioning that that bothers me um and so it i guess i'm i'm uh case by case reaction <laughs> okay yeah i i think probably most people you know sometimes you see a word and you're like what is this and um and other, and then maybe other times you think, oh, that's, that's cool and interesting. I'm thinking like, so maybe, a, you know, the people who, um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the people who, you know, like, uh, are in charge of like cleaning up and maintaining things in a, in a public school, like used to be called like a janitor. And then yeah. people didn't like, that, that word came to be seen as negative. And then so people started saying custodian, um, which I guess must have had some previous meeting of, of like a legal custodian or something but then at some point like janitor custodian sort of um 
our synonyms and whatever, you know, negative connotations we have about someone who has that job of, like, cleaning up children's vomit, um, you know, the new word didn't change anything. And you can see this. Right. So, so you know, well-intentioned, but... Like, call, like, just call them a janitor. It's fine. They they know, and, like, also, like, I don't think there's anything undignified about that. And I bet that if you talk to the most janitors... Like, also, there's this whole thing where this is just projecting... This is rich people projecting their own fears about losing social status. And, like, the, the biggest actual stratification in America is between people who probably don't even have one friend who didn't go to college and and would process it psychologically they would process it as a disaster if their child didn't go get into college or decided not to go to college and people who you know didn't go to college like that's that's the biggest actual social divide we have and and where do the types of terms that i dislike and i'm objecting to tend to be born and where do they proliferate where do they gestate in college i mean that, that's that's really what i'm talking about here and um i i just i guess i don't like I hate, I just hate saying it this way because it seems so brash. But like, I just don't believe people when they tell me they don't see the phenomenon that I see. Like, here I'm going to click to this thing that I wrote about um, this week. I'm quoting a New Yorker piece called "Is Mars Ours?" Uh, wringing its hands over the the potential unethical nature of um, our going to Mars as a species because we might because often the way it's talked about is in terms of colonialism using words like frontier and such, and that by because of those words, this project is morally suspect. Now, of course, that's nuts. I mean, a normal person doesn't think like this because there's, no, there's nobody on Mars to be unethical towards. <laughs> that we know of. Well, I mean, sure. Well, Elon isn't there yet. I mean, okay, yeah, I think so, it's, you know. Let me just read you this passage from The New Yorker, sure, right? Sure, go for it. Okay. Um, this, this, they're quoting a source, and they have to note, all these things about what type of person she is, not just like what she thinks and what she does in the world. So tracing her ancestry back to both Barbados and Eastern Europe, Prescott Weinstein is a queer, black, Jewish, agender woman and said that her second discipline has become, quote, black feminist science, technology and society studies. Two years ago, she was a panelist at Decolonizing Mars, an unconference at the Library of Congress. Like, Everyone, like, I don't have to actually convince anybody that that's weird. That's a weird way to talk. That this is a weird person, and that she's she's up to something. Like that, you know what I mean when I'm like, eh, and I gesture at this. Yeah, that's that's definitely different. I mean, yeah. So, like, this goes back to sort of the all all these little like sub communities, or you know, they they in. 30 or 40 years ago, they wouldn't have found each other, or maybe they had, like, a zine, or, you know, they met, like, in the back of a bar once a week, and then, and then like, fast forward to the 2010s, they're on Tumblr and talking about the stuff, and, and suddenly they're everywhere. So, like, agender is not a word I would have been aware of in college, um, you know, 15 years ago, uh, but, but you know, there were t thousands or tens of thousands of people identifying this way online, and they found each other and started talking about it this way. I mean, so... So, so it's somewhere between, like, should we take this seriously, or is this ridiculous? How, you know, do we, if someone says they're an agender woman, I, I don't know what that means. Do we need to, like, respect this? And this gets into the pronoun stuff. I don't really want to get into that part. It's just, like, being nice and respectful towards people. Like, just it's also just, like, none of my business, except that, like, she's in the New Yorker and at the Library of Congress having an unconference. And, like, I'm sorry, but I, I reserve my right to point and laugh. 
And like that, like I, I'm going to point and laugh at an unconference about decolonizing Mars, a place where I, I have to stress again, there isn't anybody and we have never been. <laughs> um, well, you know, I think it would be as, as and also the people who talk in a like this. And again, I can't exactly define what I mean when I say like this, but I feel like everybody knows. And some people just lie and tell me they don't know what I mean, but they do like people like this also like have taken over all the magazines I love and are mean to me. And like, that's <laughs> the best way I can say it. Like it's mean the way that people behave towards one another who talk like this. And so I, so I resent it. That is the Like, I'm just trying to be like, a pe like talk about the sort of pathos of what is going on here, because I feel that we've gotten into such fighting over like the conceptual definitions of things. Yeah. And like, I I had this I have this very brilliant friend who like when whenever some uh fight over the the very, like the definition of wokeness comes up he always brings up the the really crappy old um like Jeff Foxworthy shtick where the that like idiot comedian would would say uh you know if you do like, a pickup truck with a gun rack you might be a redneck and he's like dude we know like you know, if, if you have an LGBTQIA plus flag on your on your Raytheon float at the Pride Parade, you might be a woke neck is his like bit. Right? <laughs> it's like, you, you know what this tendency is. It's a cultural tendency. People are acculturated into it. And you've met people like this and, you know, and stop pretending you don't. You know, know. I, OK, so here's the thing. I, I not sure I actually have met people like this. I think I've seen them online. But I was somewhat, so you talk about your, like, you know, cultural milieus and stuff, and you, so there's a part where you talk about, you know, your background, and I actually, okay, I have this quote here. This is from the piece, because I live in Brooklyn, work in journalism, went to private school at a reasonably fancy college, and I'm friends primarily with workers in the, quote, information economy. I can speak fluent wokeese. I usually don't speak it, but I can, I don't like it, I think it sounds bad, and I choose to use English most of the time, but I know perfectly well how to sound if I want to be a consultant, or if I need to go to grad school, or if I'm in or if I am in an interview for really any job that pays upward of six figures and is based in the city. Um, That's, it's a millionaire. Thing. Again, I'm, all I'm trying to impress upon people is this isn't like a project that's an, an intellectual movement of black radical activists. This is a millionaire, rich, white person thing that over-indexes for grad students. It's, yeah, so, I think the grad school, the grad school aspect is... To it. They are not being hostile to black people. They're being hostile to the the landed white upper class, <laughs> Aristo and bourgeois classes, as Marx would define them. Right. Um, yeah. So what interested me was you know thinking like, um, despite the fact that we're you know talking to each other and following each other on Twitter. So just I um I went to public school K through twelve, a fancy college. Um, do work in the information economy, kind of. Um, uh, don't live in Brooklyn, but I yeah I don't know if I've ever actually met anyone who certainly says words like this in real life. I, yeah, I see them online. It's like, at, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time, I went to college in Ireland where there was a whole, uh, I thought it would be a really easy cultural transition because I'm like, they're right across the ocean and they speak English and my great grandparents are Irish. Maybe this will be fine. And I had to find that like, I was offending against some cultural norm when I used the phrase British Isles which is something that I've been kind of freaked out about for 10 years now, because I, you know, they, they, they insisted I call it like the Hibernian archipelago or some, some, <laughs> the, some circumlocution. Okay. So, so not... every, so every, so that, what does that demonstrate that sort of every group has their own little things that they particularly care well, about? Since that happened, which would have been in like 2011, um, what's interesting is that Ireland has been more or less taken over by not its own, you know, 
it didn't retain its own upper class discourse norms. It's been taken over by our upper class discourse norms and now retains basically the the taboos of American wokeness uh, and is talking about like structural racism and post-colonialism. And I'm like, no, guys, you're a you're a former colony. Have you forgotten about your revolution that was like just 100 years ago? What are you doing? Uh, you mean in the sense of the that the white people in Ireland are like beating their own breasts about right colonialism? Talk- I actually just saw a tweet that some Irish politician, you know, was aligning themselves with the you know Palestinian movement because they were similar similarly yeah, colonized by you know the British and so forth. That's a staple feature of Irish politics, but but they um, they for example will um, it's kind of hard to explain because they've gone they've gone through such intense social change. Uh, so quickly, mostly because of the, the kind of relaxation of the power of the church, but uh, they, how do I want to characterize this? They, um, I don't, I don't want to say anything stupid about Ireland because I haven't been there four years. Okay. Uh, and I'm, and I'm very worried about it right now. But um, I, I guess the point is like, I, I think a country that uh, is a small revolutionary republic uh, should, that has ethnic right of return laws should not be um, thinking about itself in terms of like American immigration fights. Mm-hmm. So uh, this so this would be a social a social media thing because they speak English primarily in Ireland, and so they get our social media. Is that the explanation? They get our TV. It's definitely that, and our TV. I mean, we have we have enormous cultural soft power, and our politics is taking over everything more so than it already had. And during the Trump years, things were very intense, and still are. And so, I think that as as far as the politics of immigration restrictionism were an enormous cultural flashpoint uh, that was discussed in ways that were, I thought, um, important, also somewhat dishonest. Uh, People were trying to enforce views on one another. Um, that I don't know. People were misrepresenting each other's words. Basically, I thought that um, it was odd to see that come up in Ireland, where I was like, "You, you understand that you guys have the immigration policy that Donald Trump wants. You can't try to like take the moral high ground from the left on America. It doesn't make sense." That's just the sort of thing that like there's just a lot of internal. We talk around a lot of like internal policy and political inconsistencies with just buzzwords and made up phrases that don't make sense. Right. I, okay. So, ha, you know, well, it, okay, well, let, let me just shift slightly. So, uh, you know, there's the, the excerpt that you read from that New Yorker, New York article, you know, that's the way of taking it seriously. But then there's, it seems to me there's, there's as much or more of people online who just say these things, who say these things knowing that it's a joke. And like a lot of terms, and, you know, that, like, like holding space or something. Like, I hear people using that in a, just a total mocking way, and these are, like, you know, lefty Brooklyn types. Like, I'm thinking of one podcast in particular uh, where if anytime they, they'll say something about this, um, you know, using sort of SJW or woke speak, it's always in an arch tone, and they're, like, making fun of it at the same time that they're talking about it. So one of your, um, you talk about how, you know, if you want to speak wokeies, you need to talk about, like, bodies and spaces and, and platforms and stuff. And remind me of this uh, tweet from uh, 2017. This is one of those weird Twitter accounts. If those, if we can still say that's a coherent group, uh, J- uh, Jush Main. Um, uh, and this is a famous tweet. Uh, 
in certain circles. Uh, so it says Pitchfork. King Pussy Eater revolutionizes our perception of bodies and spaces with his hit single, Goop on Your Grinch, 7.6. So it's reading that, it's somewhat hard to understand what the joke is, but it's making fun of the kind of headline that Pitchfork, the online hipster, um, you know, uh, music review site, would have done at some point, and that there'd be a, a, <laughs> a you know, rapper or something, King Pussy Eater, the S's are dollar signs, and that his... <laughs> You know, goop on your grin, John, whatever that means, if that's just total nonsense, just a funny phrase. And so, so this guy was making fun of this. This was from 2017, four years ago. He's already talking about bodies and spaces. He's, you know, he's showing that this is kind of, you know, kind of stupid to begin with. And I'm sure this guy is probably like, you know, dirtbag left or, or something. You know, he probably is a Bernie fan. If, yeah. if I can place his politics. But so there's, there's as much, you know, people are like, people are talking this way, but there's, you know, there's other people who are just like totally mocking this in a good natured way, not like saying, well, you know, so like the Sean Hannity way or something, but. Angry. But I mean, so one of the things that I talk about in the piece, and I, I this is where I, I actually think the piece was maybe the most successful, is the relationship between like the actual. I mean, because conservatives will just use the phrase the left to mean anyone to the left of me, and then the actual left will, will use. Or sorry, they'll, they'll use the phrase liberals and the left like interchangeably because it's interchangeable functionally interchangeable for them whereas the actual left as in socialists who are skeptical and revolutionary will like use the word liberal also with that sour tart connotation because these are people who are to their right yeah and i think that there this causes no end of talking past each other but generally speaking my understanding is that you know, this is why the World Socialist website has done the most aggressive disputing of the 1619 project, right? In like a hilarious handshake of power, epic handshake, whatever that meme is called, with like Donald Trump's extremely incompetent and insane attack on it. Uh, and so like, I, I think that um, I I tried to characterize in, in the article the way that uh, woke people see themselves as uh, being like all the way out on the left and revolutionary, whereas uh, the actual left, the people who are meaningfully rather than merely symbolically um, pushing for leftist politics to take over, uh, I think what I think, which is that it's it's a scam, it's a parasite, and it's and it's focus and it should be recognized as such and it's also very obvious that it is um so this creates very strange uh, alliances and bedfellows where the right and the far farthest parts of the left are like yeah what, what are you doing here you know and as i mentioned in the piece you know adolf reed has been um an interesting figure in this regard um yeah and, and matt bruning wrote a piece of freddie deboer would be another person i mean basically you know Maybe right. you could put the yeah, Trap, yeah. Trap House Red Scare people there, too. And What is Vogue? Vogue is a magazine for selling. It's explicitly a magazine about luxury culture. It's about luxury consumer culture. And now and then the the the, the presence of Teen Vogue, which is a what I, I would describe as a very woke publication, is is nuts. It's a it's like the mo, it's the er example to me of like, oh, like this shouldn't be. This shouldn't have happened. I don't know how this happened, but I'm going to try to explain to myself and to others, how did this happen? Why did this happen? And I am, I am not going to side with this, but just because it thinks of itself as on the left is not, I'm not, I'm not going to locate my own politics 
around this and if other people want to see me as being reactionary or right wing because I react against and dislike whatever the hell it is that is going on at Teen Vogue, like that's all right. I don't really care how people, what words people use to classify me. I just think that things that are going on there are very, are very silly. Uh, I, I don't think right, but I mean, there's okay. Teen Vogue, I don't entirely understand it either, uh, and they had this controversy talked about it in my previous episode with Ben Burgess about a new editor being uh, kicked out the door because of old offensive tweets. Um, but I mean, so yeah, so they seem to be, but they're not just on the woke train. Like they have articles about like Marxism, you know, and stuff. So I, I don't know. I don't pay enough attention to them. As I say in my piece, woke people speak specifically um, affectionately about socialism and Marxism, but they are not radical. They are not revolutionary. They merely think they are. And so I, I describe in the piece an exchange between Wes Yang and somebody at Market Watch, a right. site that's ridiculously, again, this is, it's, it's comic. Like the, the, the website Market Watch, which if you click onto it, is like covered in stock tickers because it's for stock people doing stock things, is like tweeting out like revolutionary communist, communist agitprop. And you're like, I'm sorry, I don't believe you, Market Watch, that you want to just, that, like, that you want, like, a Marxist revolution. I don't think that's right. I think that you might be lying to me. Why do I think that? Because there's the stock ticker for, like, the Dow. What are you talking about? <laughs> okay, so is this, is this a, um, like, a kind of false consciousness, like, in a weird reverse way from what, you know, classical Marxists would say? Is it a, like, yeah. do they actually know that this is all put on? Are they fooling themselves? How, how do you... In your interpretation, what, what's question. going on? First of all, like I'm, I'm wary of. Uh, I think it's always good, kind of psychological advice to, to just say out loud, like if you're characterizing somebody else's intent and private mind, like you don't know, so I don't know. But my understanding and guess is that um, there is a division between people who are doing it completely cynically and true believers. I think that there are the younger in their 20s somebody is currently, we are now speaking in 2021, um, the likelier they, likelier they are to have been educated and acculturated um, such that they are, they actually have never seen, you know, like they don't remember the Bush years. They don't remember what it was like for it to be kind of unmentionable to say like, I think everyone should be allowed to smoke weed on the street and gay people should be able to get married and like make out on television shows. <laughs> so like the, the idea that most of the cultural repression and like that it, in as much as there was low social trust, you could express your social trust only with people about things that like, just in other words, that, that the right was more culturally dominant than it is today. Um, and so a lot of this comes from the assumption of left-wing cultural dominance uh, that people again lie about. They're like, I don't know this what left wing cultural dominance. I'm like, come on, you know, like Coca Cola is making ads for the for you personally, like as like as a like specifically attuned for your preferences. You should and your left wing. You should understand. But again, when I say left wing, it's important to recognize the distinction between center left liberals and actually the actual left and then everyone who's right wing. I mean, this, these are not complex distinctions for people to maintain. And yet they, they seem to fail at it all the time. I am myself, I think on the center left, but I'm not like, I, I can't be like the suasion of like a Coca-Cola ad saying like, and we're doing like such great inclusion, like vote for the person who looks like America. Like these phrases that are just totally meaningless. It just doesn't work on me. I don't know why people like it so much. I find it unappealing. Um, and so I, 
I guess it just seems to me that, again, if you just don't like dishonesty, you should note that these are phrases that are pro-dishonesty and anti-intellectual uh, and try to just analyze things in, in terms of that. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's not an original point at this point to say if Coca-Cola is saying it, then it doesn't really challenge the um, underpinnings of contemporary society because Coca-Cola sells sugar water, you know, by the billions every day. Um, and that's not, you know, doesn't really have our best <laughs> interest in heart. I think about, of course I love Coca-Cola. It's, um, you know, it's the real thing. Um, or is that Pepsi the real thing? I can't remember now. Um, okay. So. Right. But it's also, as I also mentioned in the piece, like I'm also open to the right wing analysis where it's like the reason that Raytheon and Coca-Cola are so successful is because they, as you say, like, make good stuff they're good at bombs and they're good at sugar water and that's like also why they succeed and they're by the way they're also good at advertising to people and giving them what they want to hear like, yeah I, and so I, it, you know the, the 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 genius you know well-paid um consultants and advertisers and and so forth who are trying to figure out how to sell their sugar water to the american people have decided at this point that one way to do it is to you know um protest against the uh, Georgia voting law by, uh, you know, saying that the, the Major League Baseball shouldn't have their uh, all-star right. game in Atlanta or whatever. Um, okay, like, so, you know, they're, that's their their calculation. And, you know, it's certainly true that young people, the type, I mean, it's the type of people who advertisers want to influence are young people because older people have, like, set consumer patterns and... Uh, if they're already if they're in their fifties and drinking Pepsi, that that's not going to change. They want to get like teenagers and so forth, um, and so the, a lot of marketing is targeted at you know people under twenty five, even though you know maybe they're like fifteen percent of the population or something. Um, and so th that calculation is that you know using embracing this stuff is the way to keep on selling stuff. And you know during Black Lives Matter, almost every corporation put out some sort of like we stand with. This movement statement, including laughable ones, like I think Gushers was the one that was yeah, funniest. The the, um, <laughs> the like gelatin <laughs> treat that I enjoyed as a child. So Gushers stands with the you know the Black Lives Matter movement. So if if Gushers is there, then yeah, then I, they... got, I got and ate some Gushers because I was reminded they existed because of that. So how did I remember them being strangely good? But I haven't had one in probably about three decades. They're uh, fantastic. <laughs> um, I will advertise for you. <laughs> okay, so at one point, you, so on, on, you could say, okay, it, at the point where Gushers and the whatever corporate entity owns Gushers is on the bandwagon, then like they've won. Um, but at the same time, like they've won what? Um, you know, if <laughs> like this is all sort of in the realm of symbolic politics, and well, they, what has actually changed here? Here's the problem. It, I think that the the problem with that formulation is like it's not they didn't win. They all they won was Gushers ads. They didn't like it. Let me put it another way. Let's say that you were the sort of person who actually wished for liberatory movements for historically oppressed and marginalized peoples to succeed. This is actually not a hypothetical for me. I am such a person. You would want them to win victories that were not merely cosmetic. You would want them to win substantial victories. And my problem, this is when I say this is a parasite on the project of whether you want to call it the left or just, I would just say like good people who think right and aren't nuts. Like 
uh, everyone wants actual justice. And when you capitalize that J and put a social before it, like you start screwing things up really bad because people all think in a we're human, we're a social species and people think in a very conventional way. And the things that they start thinking are just like not right. And so they, they, they start thinking that they have one when they've won like the wrong thing and they totally have taken their eye off the ball. So like, it's to me, it's like, they're like, it's, I don't know, maybe this metaphor doesn't make sense, but it's like a baseball game where like they've won the thing where like who can get the fans to do the better wave. But like, meanwhile, the other team is just like hitting like home run after home run. And like the scoreboard is like just totally asymmetrical. And they're, and the, but the team that's losing is like, yes, yes, we did it. Look how good the fans are clapping and waving. And you're like, what, who do, do you understand what the actual game being played here is? Do you know what the hell is going on? You just, you literally aren't looking at the ball. Okay, so and, yeah, so this is sort of a you know, this, or stupid words are the thing, wokeism is the opiate of the young people or something would be one way to maybe put this that. Yes, I mean I think that people that are being fooled and things crazy. continue continue on. Like I, I mean, so your piece was written months before the Christopher Hitchens uh, in with reservations, and I I would be remiss as a as a Hitch acolyte to not point out that phrase is constantly misconstrued when uh, when Mark said religion is the opiate of the masses. He was speaking positively of religion. Uh, so I have impressed people. He, he continued, if you read the full paragraph, he, he was... Because he, opiates had a more positive valence in the yeah, 1840s? He, or? He meant, it was like it like a painkiller. It helps. Uh, just to, sorry, it's just a pedantic point. I know. Okay. Um, no, that, 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 that's interesting. Um, but, okay, you know, so your piece was written months before this uh, online ad came out from the CIA, um, with uh, talk about this in the Burgess episode, um, in some way your piece like anticipates this. You talk about Raytheon, you know, this is yeah. the company or not company, the organization or whatever that you know buys the missiles that Raytheon manufactures to you know launch via drone into the Middle East. Um, and but the so sort of the reaction to that, like, doesn't that show that like everyone, everyone I saw was laughing at this and, be, and mad about it one way or another. So this is where Twitter really isn't real life. I mean, look, I, I think that, look, a, a recruitment video is aimed at primarily 18 to 22 year olds. And one of the things I was going to say to you earlier, because I was surprised to hear you say, again, I only know you from Twitter, but like I, uh, that you don't really know a bunch of people who are like sort of sincerely and really woke. It tends to me to be people who are like a little online and take their politics very much from just sort of like, the culture around them as they perceive it, but they don't perceive it necessarily very piercingly. And like where, where I would go to like, if you, if you, if I were to get in the car and go pick you up and be like, let's go, let's go find some wokesters. I would take you to Yale where I spent a bunch of time in college and like, that, I don't that, that's a, in case anyone didn't know, that is the college that I attended as a, as a young person. Okay. So I, I, I didn't go there, but I spent a lot of time there in college and, and like, you know, that's that's definitely where I encountered the most people who, like, sincerely believed and used a bunch of the words that later I found kind of infecting a bunch of, you know, like, the, the reason I don't read the New Republic anymore is because it's full of the sort of people that I met at Yale. And this was and, circa 2010? Yeah, like 2010 to 2014 or so. Huh. Um, and I... I or, you know, Brown or Princeton or... These the Ivy League schools. <laughs> okay, and, so, and like, you know, whether whether the kid is there because their their parents are millionaires or whether they maybe they 
they got their way there uh, without having millionaire parents, their expected lifetime earning is very likely to be millions higher than somebody who didn't go to an Ivy League school. Um, you know, or or I would take you to, you know, like people are making fun of Barry Weiss on Twitter for focusing on these ridiculous, uh, the Dalton type, you know, Harvard West, like whatever, like fancy schools. But like, that's another place that if, if you wanted to find actually existing sincere wokeness, we I could take you right now to Manhattan to my old prep school and like you, you'd find it. Um, okay, yeah, I, 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 I these people definitely exist, and maybe there, more of them are online than in real life. Probably you would agree with that. Um, yeah. But I mean, just so personally, yeah, I did go to I, I graduated from Yale in two thousand five, and, th- and then I lived in yeah. um, in Western New York for a dozen years with like sort of the like the normies, um, more or less, and so. Uh, you know, I would see, yeah, I just, I would see things online, but it was, it didn't filter down because, you know, there's places that are like culturally behind the majority movement. It just, it uses, this is again, through, through the abuse of language, it uses bullying tactics where, you know, I am told by New York times writers periodically that I am a racist because I use the term woke and that term quote, I hear it with a hard R, um, which is another thing that I mentioned in the piece that like, as though I am using the n-word by using this word that i mean it's there there's still get woke and stay woke graffiti all over my neighborhood i live in bushwick like because it's it's now it's like seeing hieroglyphs in a pyramid or something but like because it's three years ago that was the that was the cool thing to say and now it's of course only used pejoratively because i don't know things evolve and yeah i i I think i think it is unfortunate that that woke ended up being the catch-all term for all this stuff. It used to be SJW. Um, and then... Nastier and more abusive, which is why long ago I, I wrote a piece saying, look, I don't really like this phrase. I don't like a lot of... Like, snowflake is another one that, like, I actually kind of liked the way that the metaphor works because it's saying, you think you're kind of infinitely uh, special and unique and deserve careful handling, but you kind of melt when touched. Like, I, I think that's a good... <laughs> work. work is a joke, but but the people... I just started to notice, like, oh, like, that creep from Fox News is using it. I don't want to be affiliated with that. So yeah, I, I think... So I had I had Robbie Suave on this show about three years ago. He wrote a book called Panic Attack, and he's actually... Uh, he was one of the people who sort of brought the term cancel culture somewhat into wide, wider use. And then he's actually, I think... I don't know where you're serious or joking, but he's like done a number of tweets over the past couple of months saying like, I apologize for bringing this because like anyone who anything bad happens to them, they're like, I'm being cancel cultured and right. it's gotten out of control. Trump's weird. Like, I don't know what he's doing now. Instead of tweeting, he releases these like, he's a blog basically, whatever he, he's, he's a Tumblr teen now, but like he, uh, he, he said that the, the uh, Preakness thing where the the horse was doping was cancel culture, and I was just like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah, the horse the horse was canceled. Um, Even for you, yeah. So I think it's interesting that the, I think um, this is the first time we've mentioned uh, former President Donald J. Trump in this conversation. That you know that is in a, something that can't be ignored. Like he has dominated our consciousnesses from. Uh, January, sorry, from uh, July 2015 until he was kicked off Twitter. And his malign personality has warped everything else in America and the world and inside our brains during that time. So, I mean, and there's so, you know, it, it's like if, if, if Trump, if Trump hadn't won, if Trump had never been born, it's just hard to see like what would, how would this have worked out if, you know, Ted Cruz had become president, if Hillary Clinton had become president. It's, it's hard to know. Um, 
it's impossible to know, I guess. But, you know, I mean, Snowflake is, is funny because, like, who is the biggest snowflake right, in absolutely. the world? It's Donald J. Trump. By the way, like I mentioned earlier, and we don't have to get into this at length, but like I'm writing about trolling and it's so hard to write about because he fits so much of the model. But then one of one of the things that most trolls, whether today online or I'm writing really mostly about historical things from before the word was coined, but that I think fit the model. And um, he like most trolls are really impervious to being trolled themselves is actually a huge part of it is this sort of like studied uh, detachment. And like he's not. You can get that guy to just start screaming about like any subject you're just a little bit insulting about if you can communicate with him at all. Yeah, he's very and easy so, to rile up. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I don't, you know, the, the, his, the historians and cultural historians, if they still exist in 1500 years, will be looking back on this and trying to figure out what was the interaction between this and the fact that you know so much of this um, language uh, grew on social media and then Trump used social media. Uh, to power his rise and used it in a way no American politician ever had before. Um, like it's, it's all part of it. And the, yeah, it's just like there's so many weird things that social media introduced that, um, that never would have been possible before and then became sort of like, like normalized. Like, you know, Trump would tweet something and then, and then a thousand people would say eat shit. Phrase, but like, cause it, cause it implies that we could through kind of, collective action or force of will like make it continue to feel abnormal like it refers to the emotional experience of how something feels normal or abnormal not just to whether something actually is like numerically common or usual and i, I don't i just have always thought that it's it, it's some sort of linguistic social engineering that people are referring to when they say like don't normalize this um well you know and then there was this a very common thing a very I mean, common thing people would say online about things that happened during the Trump administration was this is not normal. But like right. if it's happening repeatedly, then I guess it is sort of normal. Right. And like if the president is saying it, you know, the president is sort of like in the American cultural conception, the, you know, father deity of, of all of our lives, like it, it became became normal. And so, you know, tweeting at the president sending out all caps uh, statements at 1 a.m. became normal because that's what was happening. But um right. I, look, in, in college, I studied philosophy. I just I don't have anything but like a, you know, undergrad and I guess master's thing. But like the the way that we were trained to think when we were writing an essay about some I don't know, dispute in the history of philosophy or whatever was to distinguish between disputes that were merely verbal is the going phrase and disputes that are substantive. And I I thought that Trump was a real master of getting people to have merely verbal disputes with him and freak out about stuff that um, he, I, I was very freaked out about his presence and his holding power. But um, I thought it, a judicious and wise person who wished to oppose him, uh, I won't say resist, would um, would actually hold their fire on the things that they didn't need to bother with. And this is, I think, of a piece. If, I mean, if you want to really kind of begin to dig through and analyze, like, what happened there, I think a big part of, like, I, I experienced Trump's rise and particularly his, his campaign for 2016 as, among other things, just a, like a horrific attack on the English language, and which I'm just really sensitive about. And then, uh, you know, and then when, when his opponents started to, I felt um, kind of pick up the abusive language back at him, uh, in order to fight things that he was doing. Um, and then everything became like, okay, there's some dispute at the border. Like, you know, is, does it, 
is it is all is everything but open borders uh like fascist immigration restrictionism is the type of dispute that i find completely um distracting and foolish to have and i you know i recall um like angela nagel getting some version of what might be classified as canceled because she she pointed out that for his entire career bernie sanders has been not the biggest friend of open borders uh it's it's these sorts of what I consider merely verbal disputes. If if your whole if your dispute can be settled by the dictionary and not by, you know, facts like that, that you're having the sort of dispute that like people who want meaningful substantive change and wants to agree about things that they actually agree about and disagree about things they actually disagree about and not fucking tweet, just like just put put it all aside if you care. And it seems to me that people who don't have to care and are very privileged to use the, the parlance or running stuff because they have distracted us with merely verbal, foolish, uh, substanceless, crazy, and very boring debates. Um, well, so two things that, uh, two great polarizing forces of our times are social media and Donald Trump. And the way to succeed on social media is to have a very sort of uh, black and white, moralistic, highly emotionally charged statement, and then you get a thousand retweets. And and Trump was good at that, but also you know any whatever because Trump was so outrageous and awful, you know he polarized something so that um, you know immigration used to be sort of like a cross cutting issue where you know George W. Bush tried comprehensive immigration reform, and there were um, there were people. Uh, in the Democratic Party, who were not on board with that, and you know, Trump has made it so that like the red team, blue team, it's you know, ev- everyone has everyone is polarized. Um, so so both of those things are bad. Um, and you know, just, just I I I tried to tweet this once, and I think I didn't state it well, and it may, I don't have it fully formed in my head, and maybe it's sort of doesn't make any sense to begin with. But like a lot of the disputes, like you say, on social media, uh, turn on word use, a specific term, someone saying the wrong word, and, you know, social media is, uh, despite Twitter having, like, uh, you know, the ability to record a little, um, audio clip, audio file of yourself, it's, it's people typing out words, and so in this universe, this, like, closed universe in which words are the things that matter, um, you know, disputes about words and word usage are more important than in the real world where, like, you know, someone getting punched in the face or shot is, is a big problem, not the specific word they use. Of course, you know, so you're the philosopher, um, you know, we, we can't, like, mediate reality without language, maybe, I don't know. But but in this in this world, it's like, like, uh, semantic disputes, whether to use POC, BIPOC, um, you know, whether the the word black should be capitalized or not, like, like these attain totemic power when... <laughs> they don't. They don't have a material uh, effect uh, in the in the real world as as much as people think they do. I think that's right. I mean, so like, I to steal a formulation from Jane Coaston, uh, like I think that we uh, we give entirely too much. We like words matter more than people think, and also less. Like it, these two things can be true at the same time because they're in in different ways. Like people give too much they invest too much symbolic significance and just like energy in word fights but also like words are very very important because they're the only thing we have to communicate 
concepts to one another and concepts matter and like the things we do because people communicate one thing rather than another thing matters uh, yeah without um, words i mean the, w- i guess we have symbols but uh <laughs> they're very beautiful like i i really like reading words uh it's just that that is one of awesome. my one of my favorite things to read are words i would say like it's yes. top yes. three at least yes uh, top four <laughs> uh, so like it, it just seems to me that um the development of new kind of like arcane sounding ridiculous euphemisms is not a should not be processed and recognized as like a moral achievement um and yet people who have dedicated themselves towards moral achievement for their political side in particular on the left and i i hate i mean people always object to like i'm totally comfortable acknowledging like the right does silly PC type stuff too. I'm very uninterested in the debate over who does it more. I just, I'm focused on the left thing because it's newer and novelty attracts people's interest. But like, uh, I think that, um, I think we should just like cool it with focusing on exactly which words people use and focus more on what people mean. And if we pay close attention, we can almost always discern what people mean and be like good at reading and listening to people. (laughs) Just like be cool. You don't have to be generous and people mean something smarter than they actually do, but like don't think that people mean something more objectionable and stupid than they actually do. Right. So yeah, be cool to each other. Well, just be good at it. Like, I mean, the problem is that, you know, uh, like misreading someone in a negative light, whether on purpose or without meaning to, is a way to go viral or to attract attention to oneself. Or um... it's invirtuous, and I think that we should just like start enforcing as more of a cultural norm. Like you, people will hate you and shame you for that. That's bad. Like we should. I'm generally against social shame. I think we we picked it up. We we have enforced a horrible shame culture, and it's getting worse and worse. On the other hand, like we should shame misreading. misreading well, I mean the pro- I mean the problem is that you know we elected the least virtuous person in America to be president, um, and so you know we obviously Americans don't agree on what the what the virtues are and who who embodies them. Um, so we we have a way to go there. I think he that wasn't like an accident like we he was elected specifically because he was the least virtuous person in America and everyone recognized it. Well, and, it's it's hard to say, you know, this is I guess the mirror image of, you know, are, the, are people like fooling themselves or, or cynical or what? Like, you know, there's people who think there's the QAnon people, the crazy part where Trump is fighting on behalf of the like children who are being you know like raped and eaten, but then there's just like the people who yeah, like, oh, yeah, Trump, he's a good Christian man, and, like, he loves his family, and, um... Sorry. Like, do they like, believe that or not? Like, I, it seems I mean, laughable, of, but... I think that they're, I mean, at the very least, it's they're compelled into believing that by fear, right? Like, there was this whole thing right around when Trump was elected first. Uh, the joke that was, like, uh, the... Um, the, the emotions that everyone would talk about were hate and fear, hate and fear. We said it like over and over again. I remember this being in every op-ed, like, you know, hate and f- we have to, what are we going to do about the culture of hate and fear in America that got Donald Trump elected? And I remember thinking like, I'm not sure those are the relevant emotions. I think fear is right. But like, I think it's self-pity and fear. People feel bad for themselves and they feel beset by other people and put upon. They don't feel hate towards others. They feel like others have it over on them. And that, like, something is unfair. Yeah, uh, well, self-pity, I think, is definitely... 
things happen to them. It's like, I'm worried they're going to do bad things to me. And then you get to, I hope bad things happen to them because you're, you want, you know, your contenders to be uh, disempowered. But like, that's a very different kind of emotional experience. And it's not very different, but it's like, subtly different, but it's important. I, I think self-pity is an important, very important part of the Trump persona and the people who felt like they were victims who saw him as, you know, their champion. I've made this joke before, you know, the Trump, Trump's real, um, you know, epitaph should be, uh, they treated me very unfairly because he, he you know, it, it, strangely, he, his, his persona is winning, but really he, he, right. his real persona is like, they, they cheated yeah. me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the real victim here. And so that, that, that resonates. And you could say there's, who, who is who is the victimizer? Well, maybe it's capitalism. Uh, maybe it's uh, the deep state. Maybe it's you know the Zionist entity. But mm-hmm. um, but Trump was able to channel those feelings of you know I've been betrayed, I've been mistreated, and and you know say that he's the one who's fighting against it. And, and one of the, you know one odd thing about how Trump the Trump years played out was that it seemed initially the um, who he was saying was cheating you were you know uh, people crossing the Mexican border illegally and taking your jobs, um, you know, Muslims who are like uh, performing acts of terror on the homeland and in the Middle East, and like, and then sort of the amorphous like deep state or liberals or something. But really, you know, and so there was, I think, a lot of fear early on, and the the travel ban being one of the first things that the administration did reinforces that like there was going to be this sort of real like um, clash and violence against specific groups are really that sort of faded away and it just became the media because Trump is like this media creation and he watches TV all the time. And so like the like media deep state that became like the Democrats that just became the, the big enemy. And that's and, and the failing New York times and the lion media and MS DNC and so forth became like, you know, became the villains and, and there weren't like pogroms against Arabs or Mexicans in America. I can't remember which um, like right wing pundit I was listening to on a podcast said said that like an important it just as a matter of political strategy it's important to understand that like the American political right hates the media more than they hate Democrats and that just if you want to win you just got to know that and like to the degree that I process the Trump years as being surprisingly better than I feared um, except not- for that one <laughs> the one big exception. It was, I, well, I was at like total DEFCON 1, like during the campaign, I was at like, I, he specifically when he talked about the deportation force, like immigration is my top political concern in the sense that I am very pro-immigration. It's like just as far as I rank issues, like I, that's my thing. I, I want more immigration. So like he, I was very unhappy with him talking about creating a deportation force to go into the interior of the country and like tear people away. I was like, oh, yeah, and, and some of that did happen, but it was it, it it didn't amount to as much, and the wall did not get fully built. And best as possible with ourselves, like what was projected and predicted, what we were picturing in our minds, it's not what happened. There are things that are that happened that could be squared with the phrasing that we that we could we can pretend as though like the you know. You know what I mean? Like that, what what I thought would happen or could potentially in a worst case scenario happen that was like worst plausible scenario happened, like did not happen. So just like personally being honest about my my own. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I thought it would be Hitler and it was Berlusconi is like, you know, so um, I'm like, I hate Berlusconi. I hate Trump, but like it wasn't Hitler. So um, I guess I, I don't know, I, I think 
it just seems to me that people tried to sustain that the don't normalize this thing was trying to sustain the sense that this was Hitler and that was dishonest in some way. And I, I had to break with myself just to, I, I feel I have a responsibility to be honest with myself. And also as a writer, I got to be honest with people who read me and I had to say, I got, I got this a little wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Trump obviously wasn't Hitler. You know, Hitler was a lot smarter and more capable than Trump. And Hitler actually believed in things. Trump believes himself. I'm repeating myself for various previous episodes. But, you know, one of the things, a project that I was working on with Bob Wright, the founder of Blogging Heads, was called the Mindful Resistance Project. And we were trying, we had a newsletter and trying to do some other stuff of basically, you know, what is, you know, using ideas from, uh, like, mindfulness meditation and uh, evolutionary psychology, other things Bob is interested in, you know, what was, what was the most effective way to oppose Trump and, um, and, you know, that, that project sort of uh, it petered out, I guess you could say, but it, it definitely was a lot of nonsense that was happening. And, you know, Trump was is a farcical figure, and it was hard to figure out what, you know, and, and on any given day he would say something or do something insane, and then it was hard to know in the moment whether this was just, you know, nonsense or actually was dangerous or had a lasting effect. And then there wasn't enough time to reflect because he would say or do something crazy 36 hours later. And then, you know, he uh, responded very poorly to the uh, coronavirus pandemic. And but, but but previous to that, you know, like the economy was sort of humming along and yeah, there, there um, Muslims were not rounded up in camp. So it wasn't it didn't seem like it was and there was no nuclear war. So it didn't seem as bad as the prediction. But then all, all, you know, all of the Trump crises were self-inflicted in the first three years. And then, um, and then there was finally an, an actual external threat and he totally botched it and fucked it up. And, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of extra people died. And I would mostly blame that on Trump, although lots of other countries, you know, have screwed up this crisis as well. For me, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I can see the evidence for that in all sorts of like, points where he did something other than what I would wish him to do, especially he like believed Xi Jinping at, at moments on the telephone, but like, like against his own advisors. I think the CDC made a, bad, a bunch of bad decisions that he was ultimately the head of, you know, all federal agencies. Or, uh, on the other hand, the, the strong evidence for that claim to me would have to be similar countries to the United States had very, very different deaths per capita um, and I don't see it. I mean, it just doesn't seem in evidence to me. Uh, like we, we can look at the exact details of how the course of the pandemic, we can, I, I really want to train myself not to say played out is playing out. Um, and it just doesn't seem to me that there was some actually existing alternative like course that it could have taken. Uh, I think I, that, you know, if you had had a, if like, I actually tweeted this, I, I went back and looked it up. I tweeted this like very, like the day before the day of, you know, like the, the date that like the NBA canceled their season, it seemed like the crisis was finally here. Said if Trump cared about anything aside from himself, he would resign and let Mike Pence handle this crisis because he can't handle it. Do that, right? Like there was a degree to which that's exactly like he didn't resign, but he did basically. He was like, I'm, I don't, I just want to yell like. Well, he was checked right. out, but the fact that the, you know, our, it was revealed how much power like the, uh, or the, the executive has in our system during a crisis. And if he had been, you know, Mike Pence, a conventional politician, if he had if he had been like actually running things, it would have been better. Pretty much any, you know, if you had taken anyone off the street, <laughs> been running things, it would have it would have been better. But okay, we're, we we've gone far afield from 
our, yeah, original, our original topic. That, that's that's fine. So one thing that you said that I thought was interesting to, to go to go to like the words thing that I'm always on, uh, and I, I mean I really I'm, I try to to get at really important things with words and not just be a pedant, but that's, I guess, again, for others to decide if I'm succeeding at, but the, in as as much as you, you've mentioned being in some project that, um, use the word resistance, I I really hated that. Um, as I said, early on, I I was on board with the, the Trump Hitler comparison thing, but I, I balk now at the, um, huge proliferation of things, uh, implicitly comparing the situation of America under Trump to the situation of Germans under under Hitler, um, which is, you know, where that term comes from. And, and I, I didn't like people comparing themselves to, you know, Sophie Scholl and to the, you know, the French resistance or what, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the, the term bubbled up from online, I assume. And, and the two parallels were the French resistance and the Star Wars resistance. And, um, because, you know, I, I there's another thing I've harped on, past couple of years, like American life becoming cosplay and, you know, people sort of, you know, there was also a lot of talk about the, um, uh, the stuff that happens in Harry Potter when the, the evil, you know, Slytherin people take over the Ministry of Magic. And then like, there's this, you know, outside group, Dumbledore's army, I think it's, it's called like, that was sort of another thing that was being bandied about early on of, you know, we all need to get together to, to fight against. So yeah. The nonsense. Cl- but, yeah. Claiming the term resistance certainly made one seem like a, more important actor in a giant, you know, global galactic drama than was actually happening for, because most of those people were, like, just tweeting or something. But then there was plenty of people who were, like, organizing on the ground and knocking on doors and, like... Even that people weren't taking action outside of their own homes, it's so much as that, you know, the real resistance, well, they were killed, a lot of them. You know, like, they... It just seemed to me to be a comparison that um, people who exhibit physical courage should be there's a special valor that we should and do often reserve for them and they uh there's a difference between physical and and other courage and people who put their bodies on the line for torture and and death and persecution by the government and being jailed and things uh are different they are they really are different and they and we should just maintain that distinction in the language so that we have such a distinction um for those people that typically speaking whatever name we give to people like that should be given by other people to them and not to them by themselves. And I, so that's that, that whole thing just kind of, kind of bummed me out, I guess. Right. But I mean, you know, who are the people who are putting their, you know, their bodies on the line over the past year or so, like you have Antifa and you have the people storming the Capitol. And, but these were also like, it's postmodern because it was like this cosplay shit, like combined with, so it was like a LARP live action role play people putting on costumes and going and, and acting out sort of fiction, but in, in, in real life. And, um, and, you know, so, and both of, both of those things kind of like the, the, the fantasy is that, you know, an individual person can physically resist the state in any actual way. That's nonsense because the state has tanks and missiles and, and so forth. And so they're always going to win in the end. Um, no, because you, that also presumes, I mean, this is what's going on right now with the sort of, do we, do we, figure out whether there's extremism in the ranks of the military and in a, in a revolution, presumably some faction of the military would take their tanks and join the, the rising up people or whatever. But I, th- you, I think you put your finger there on, on I th- what bothered me so much about the, the framing of the sort of like ordinary, normal, 
only mildly politically engaged Democrats like as the as opposing Trump in, in any kind of useful way, which is that um, or in a really big way, like he, not just like in the normal course of politics, like they opposed the last Republican president, which was which is to say in terms of LARPing and fantasy um, there, there does become this um, thrill and there, there, there is a sense in which they sort of wish it to be true and the incentives flip and they st- it starts to be the case that, you know, if you're a Keith Olbermann loving resistance hashtagging um, Facebook group joining liberal who's who's enjoying I, you start to enjoy the Trump years in a way that I detected. And I, I know it's a kind of a nasty charge to make against. Oh, no, I, th- I think, you know, um, uh, I, I didn't like that. Yeah, no, like it, I, I, I didn't enjoy them at all. I hated it. I wanted it to be over. And when and I, you know, I I was glad when Biden won the primary because I, I it was my assessment that he was the most he was the one who was most likely to actually win. Um, and I thought it was the the people who were most likely to, to write hashtag resistance who forced him to have a vice presidential candidate who I thought was not strategically wise. And it, it, there's just a bunch of things that happened that I thought these people have different incentives than I do here. They are enjoying this. Yes. So I, I think there's both people who are sort of like, I mean, resistance grifter was the term for people like the Krasenstein brothers and other, you know, Jeff Tiedrick and um, Brooklyn Dad Defiant. These are sort of Twitter personalities that seem to be, you know, sort of just riding this wave. But then, like, you know, what, that movie um, that came out right after World War II called, like, The Best Years of Their Lives or Best Year of our, Years of Our Lives is like, you know, if you feel like you're participating in this great moral drama, you know, afterwards... Everything, yeah, like exactly. the return to normal life seems like a letdown, um, and you know Biden was promising return to normal normalcy. You know we haven't quite gotten there yet, but um, but yeah, I, and 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 the, the way Twitter political Twitter plays out is like every day is there's some sort of grand fight going on, and people feel like they're really doing something when really they're om- doing almost nothing, and. Right. Just making you angrier and stupid. I've, I've I've stopped tweeting other than kind of the occasional here's my article because I just realized I'm like I I, I don't want to fight with people about whether like you know you, somebody should have been shot. I don't know. First of all, okay, that that is very well very wise move and commendable move. Um, yeah, if you can if you are a participant in Twitter and then can get off of it. Um, I'm, I'm trying. I'm only a few weeks into it, but like <laughs> no, I actually noticed that you're not on as much as used to be and i actually um i i mean i've done episodes where i've talked about how awful i think twitter is but how i still have like a you know addiction or quasi addiction to it but um a couple of days ago i did i deleted from my phone for about 18 hours and was you know was just walking around uh, blissful and looking at birds you know actually tweeting and so forth but, and, but then of course i reinstalled it at some point to jump back into the over and over. it just it seems to me that like if i'm like with a bunch of people who I love and I'm like thinking about Twitter, like some, I've just mis- misarranged my priorities in some horrible way. And like, I, <laughs> right. I've known addicts to real actual drugs. And like, that's how they, that's how they, they have the conversation that we are having right now. And we should like recognize that and stop joking. It's, we all, Twitter people are always joking. They're like, Oh, it's like an addiction. And then they're like, but no, no. And and I, yeah. There's definitely, I did an episode of Phoebe Maltz-Bovey a, a couple months ago talking about the, the addictive aspects of, of it, and it definitely is objectively bad for, you know, me personally, and in most senses, and the world at large. Um, 
But, you know, over the past year, like, we, oh, many people couldn't be with their loved ones. Like, we were, people were stuck inside, and so it was the only connection, uh, you know, the, the screen was the only connection to the real world for, for a lot of people. Um, it's a dangerous thought, but, like, I wonder if we would have done lockdowns if the Internet were 10 years younger or, you know, like, if Zoom connections weren't kind of reliable and if... Uh, it definitely would have played out differently. Yeah, I, the people have yeah, talked about if this had happened in 2000, you know... Yeah, like, yeah, which is, it's not like it's so long ago. There's been like fundamental changes to technology. It's just like a couple more things or they work a little better and like, you know, the computer games are better. But um, the I, the original report that, that recommends social distancing that is like the one that we went off, not that like people hadn't thought of stay away from people during the plague and like go, you know, but um, the, the one that was like created under the Bush administration to, uh, it was actually a result of the like bioterror fears after the, um, the anthrax. Yes, the anthrax scare. Um, it, it stipulated that it, they didn't think they could get the citizenry to social distance for more than like three weeks. Um, so, you know, that they were wrong, but it's, it's interesting that that was, I think, 2005. And, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so 2005 is when YouTube uh, started, and I don't know when Skype was created, which is what we're using to record this conversation right now was probably a little bit before that, but, um, yeah. And, and, you know, Amazon, um, and uh, food delivery apps, like all these things made it tolerable to, for a bulk of the population to mostly stay inside. Um, Speaking of class analysis, by the way, like the different classes have experienced this pandemic so fundamentally differently. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I know people who were like, yeah, I did. I simply didn't leave my house for seven months. And then I know people who were like, yeah, well, I mean, I, I interacted with 300 people last week because I work at the checkout line of the grocery store, and that's how many people came to it, and I touched their stuff. And, of course, they learned right away when, like, the, you know, fomites theory of transmission changed because they were touching stuff every day. And then I know other people who are still, like, purelling their mail. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not the, you know, uh, like, I'm, I'm not going to tell you how to act, but just so you know, that is not, in fact, the science. So it and the the difference between those things is very, again that's class it's just a class thing. Yeah, and um, the uh, one of the most dangerous um, professions you could have during the pandemic was you know, working in a restaurant kitchen, um, and those are you know depending on the restaurant uh, different types of people working there, but often you know immigrants okay. or you know people who are not here legally. Or you know, people working minimum wage, and I'd like to look that up because I I don't I don't know that to be untrue. I just um, I I remember not early on, but maybe halfway between the the shutdown of the NBA and now. It's funny that we have the same marker of the beginning. That because I've uh, other people kind of all have their own. Uh, that um, some of the jobs that people expected would correlate most highly with becoming infected with COVID didn't correlate with it for example um people who work on airplanes or people who were actually actually grocery checkout employees or um beat cops or like a few like there were just a bunch of things that everyone was like well obviously right i think would, it wasn't fully understood how it was the the virus was so airborne and you know another you know people who work in a slaughterhouse that's another one uh where it's a confined space people are yelling because it's so loud and so when they're yelling they're expelling um, you know, the virus and yeah, whereas cops, if, if they're just in a car or uh, walking around outside, then, then they're a lot more protected. Um, 
But yeah, and so the people who have those jobs in slaughterhouses and in the back of a kitchen are, you know, these, these are, well, I don't know. I don't know if they're on Twitter. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm doing a, a, I'm looking into right now a case of um, a New York. This is this is where where I'm like, I, I was right all along that wokeness was reactionary. I could have told you, why didn't you people listen to me? Please listen to me. I'm screaming insanely at the wall. Like, I'm investigating this thing where... Um, Basically, a um, there was a protest. It was a protest in support of a number of, let's say, social justice-related causes, including uh, the rise in AAPI violence, which is a ridiculous term for Asian people, uh, that um, where a black protester yelled a bunch of stuff, some of it quite nasty, uh, at a police officer, uh, detective who's Chinese American. And they, um, the the police, one of the police unions is now suing the protester f- in civil court. Um, so they are arguing that it, the speech was hate speech and that it was assaultive speech. Uh, okay. So he verbally assaulted this poor cop. Um, and so um, I just feel like taking a bit of a victory lap for having been warning for a bunch of years that if you say things like this puts you know, New York Times staff in danger or whatever it is, you will you will not like what happens when other people pick up this weapon you created. Um, cops are now trying to establish the ability to sue and recover damages or at least make you pay for a lawyer if you yell stuff they don't like at them. Um, I think you should be able to. I don't I don't like what this guy yelled at the cop, but uh, I think you should be able to yell stuff at cops. Uh, I think you should be able to go to a protest and yell stuff. I don't really care what the stuff is. I think that everyone has that right. I think they should be able to do it. Um, whether the cause that they are yelling in favor of is one that I like or one that I don't like, I kind of don't care. Um, I don't think cops should be suing people for words and speech acts, and I'm really freaked out by this. So, uh, But the word, the way that the police union is framing their justification for bringing this case and the way that they're going to make their case uh, to potential jurors in a civil suit is very, uh, I guess, woke is the way to say it. And they're, they're saying, you know, these, this speech was assaulted, particularly in the climate, an AAPI person who's in the workplace shouldn't have to be subjected to this kind of verbal violence. And it's very, so it's, um, to me, come in a grimly predictable full circle to, okay, well, you've, you've generated these concepts. The concepts are sort of, double standardized so that some people use them and other people don't well you don't be don't be surprised when the cops are using them to shut down black protesters or you or anyone okay yeah so we, we've been having some tech problems and um some stuff may have been, may have been lost but um uh so so nick thank thank you for coming on and having this uh lively discussion uh, i hope our uh viewers and listeners enjoyed it if if people want to see more of your work where, where should they look uh, they can look in. I have a uh, a weekly column that is called the Word of the Week. It's in the Washington Examiner magazine. They can find. I will tweet anything that uh, I write. But right now, I'm I'm mostly just working on the book stuff. So, um, but you can find me at at Nick Claremont One. Um, I just published something about free speech in Ario magazine, which is uh, doing doing good and interesting stuff. Um, and, Anything, anything I do should be in in the Twitter feed. Okay, cool. But you're you're a wisely 
staying away from Twitter fights and um, doing... Yeah, let's hope that is still accurate by the time anyone hears this. <laughs> right. Uh, so I I have not managed to mindfully disengage from from uh, the Twitter world. People can follow me on there, R-E-A-C-W. Um, and, uh, okay, so thanks for coming on, Nick. Uh, thanks to all of our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time.